Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist. And joining me from our Fitch Solutions teams is Connor Beakey, our analyst covering North America. Connor, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me, Zach. All right. So we're covering a topic that I find to be very interesting with my macro background, looking at the U.S. fiscal deficit situation and and kind of a situation where fiscal deficits have become a key market driver really across the globe recently. We want to start by addressing kind of what have we seen happen in the U.S. over the past fiscal year to give our listeners some context and maybe provide some context around the recent move that we've seen in treasury yields. Sure. So I guess jumping off, you know, most of your clients will probably be aware at this point. There's been a significant deterioration in the U.S.'s fiscal position over the past year. The data don't look too bad on a headline basis. So we've seen the deficit go from like 5.5% of GDP in FY22 to just over 6% this year. That's bad given the economic backdrop, but I guess it's not necessarily terrible. The issue is that the headline figures are quite misleading and they look a lot worse on an underlying basis. And when I say on an underlying basis, I mean, once we net out the impact from Biden's attempted student loan forgiveness program that was struck down by the Supreme Court back in June. And we don't need to get into the, the nitty gritty of that loan forgiveness plan, but I guess the key takeaway is that while it didn't go through, given how the US compiles its fiscal data, the Treasury was forced to book the estimated cost of that scheme um, as a single lump sum last September. Um, and that had the effect of pushing up the deficit by about $350 billion or about one and a half percent of GDP. So once we net this out, that the true size of deficit in, in FY22 is probably a bit closer to say four, four and a half percent of GDP. Why that matters for FY23 is, well, we weren't going to see that cost being repeated and then the treasury. So that was always going to help kind of bail out the fiscal numbers a bit in FY23. But then obviously the treasury received another helping hand from the Supreme Court's ruling in June when it found that the, the loan forgiveness program was unconstitutional. So just as the government was kind of forced to recognize the upfront cost of this scheme, it was also forced to recognize its cancellation in one fell swoop back in August. So if we just kind of net out the student loan forgiveness program, I think that's probably the best thing to do. You know, to get a better gauge of the underlying state of the public's finances. We can see that the deficit's probably close, tracking closer to $2 trillion this year. Um, and that represents, you know, 7%, 7.5% of GDP, which is about a 25 3% points of deterioration relative to 2022. Those numbers don't look crazy relative to what we saw in, say, 2020 or after the Gulf financial crisis. But, you know, the context is much different this time around. We've seen that unemployment kind of trending at near secular lows and growth remaining well above trend. We're on track for a blockbuster quarter in Q3. Um, and I guess maybe we'll get onto this in a minute. But what's also striking is that relative to, say, the, the one to two percentage point deficit widening in 2018, 2019 linked to Trump's tax cuts, 
And it's very difficult to kind of trace back this year's issues to, to a single legislative decision. Um, and I think this partly helps to explain why everyone seems to have missed it. So I don't think the forecasting community has kind of covered itself in glory over the past year, but the, the fiscal forecast miss is quite something. Um, so this time last year, most analysts were expecting the deficit would widen to four, four and a half percent of GDP in FY23. CBO, even in February, was looking for the deficit to kind of narrow to a similar range. And that was even before we'd learned that the, the Supreme Court might strike down that loan forgiveness program. And the assumption was that the growth would be a good bit weaker. So, you know, maybe this forecasting error, I guess, is part of the story behind why projections for the US to fall into recession more generally haven't really panned out. That's a great point when just considering how much the macro picture has surprised, I guess, to the upside from an economic growth perspective, I think, even in terms of the policy rate. And so thinking about the path for the fiscal deficit to over six, above 6%, as you mentioned, in fiscal year 2024, can you just give us a real quick overview of sort of what has surprised you from an economic growth side? and how that fits into a, just a very high level touch upon your economic expectations going into 2024? Yeah, well, I guess the U.S. economy has been a bit like the, the little engine that could over the past 18 months, you know, no matter what you throw at it, significant negative income shock, most aggressive hiking cycle since the Volcker shock of the 1980s, a major drawdown. Um, in risk assets, you know, a banking sector crisis, it, it keeps trucking along. In terms of why growth seems to have held up, despite the fact we've had these negative shocks, we think a big part of it is due to the fact that the, the policy transmission channel has been clogged. And we think this kind of reflects a few different things. So, so number one, the fact that existing debtors have seen their interest rate costs, they haven't really seen them rise significantly to date. The, the private sector, as I'm sure you're aware, the credit strategist uh, locked in record low interest rates over 2020 and 2021. We've also seen fiscal policies quite loose. And then third of all, you know, the, the long end rates were really pinned down until quite recently by a combination of limited issuance by the Treasury over the first half of this year, thanks to the debt ceiling standoff. And, and then secondly, just due to the fact that investors were seemed to be betting on an almost immediate economic slowdown. I guess our contention moving forward is that the transmission channel is becoming a little bit unclogged. And um, we've seen long end rates break higher. Tenure real yields have risen by a bit. 80 bips since July to above 2%. So they're at levels now that are kind of consistent with uh, recession in the next six to nine months. And in the past, at least, though, I, I think it is also worth pointing out that the sample size is quite small. Um, and data from the BIA also suggests that, that a good bit more of the private sector will begin to feel the impact from higher rates in 2024 as, as more debt is refinanced. And we'll probably get onto it in a minute. We think that fiscal policy will turn a bit less expansionary over the next 12 months. So given those dynamics and, and given the fact that credit conditions will be tighter generally, given what's happening in the banking sector, households are running out of savings and energy prices are quite high. We think that the US will probably tip into recession by the middle of next year. And, and we'll start to see this play out as corporate profitability deteriorates over the early part of next year and firms begin to let workers go. And that will really underpin the, undermine, I guess, the, the, the linchpin of the economy, obviously the consumer. So we think that this will happen by around the middle of the year and the U.S. will fall into a mild recession over, say, Q2, Q3, maybe even Q4, with a peak to trough drawdown of about 0.8%. We do think that given the lack of kind of structural economic imbalances, a pretty quick recovery will get underway thereafter. It's in part to a fairly significant or fairly aggressive policy easing cycle. And that should help to kickstart a new expansion as, as households in particular lever up again. So I think we hit on a lot of very important topics there. One thing that kind of stands out to me is, you know, we are looking for the deficit to worsen a little bit in 2024. 
in terms of, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of the underlying drivers, but can you kind of comment on, I think in your piece, you said there was sort of like a stealth loosening in fiscal policy and in, in fiscal year 2023. How does that fit into what you're expecting in 2024 and how do the dynamics of a recession play into the whole deficit projection for fiscal year 2024? Sure. So, so as I kind of alluded to, this year's widening of the deficit, it, it's hard to kind of trace back to a single legislative decision. It's more just been kind of a confluence of or a series of unfortunate events. So we've seen a fairly significant revenue miss. So government revenues are down about 7% year on year and then and spending's overshot as well. And the anomalies are really more so on the revenue side of things. So kind of one factor which will be kind of sustained moving forward is just that the, the Fed is transferring and is no longer transferring its profit to the, the Treasury each year and, and that represents a loss of about $50 billion. Um, but the bigger issue has been a 15% plunge in, in the individual income tax take, which which looks quite odd given labor market dynamics and given that social security receipts and so on have stayed pretty have remained pretty strong. So we think that the kind of deterioration in the individual income tax take and it reflects two factors. So number one, there were income tax filing extensions in California. And California is the US's most populous state. It's one of its richest. So they didn't file like everyone else in April. They'll file instead in October. So they'll effectively pay taxes twice in 2024. And then the second thing to note is that we saw a sharp fall in the, well, we, we don't have this breakdown, but we think that it's been a sharp fall in the capital gains tax. And that was linked to the drawdown in risk assets we saw last year. Um, so if, if we think all the way back to 2021, the IRS estimates that realized capital gains totaled about 9.5% of GDP. Um, so that would be well above their pre-pandemic average near to 5%. Now, 2022 was obviously a much more difficult year for risk assets. Um, so that left a fairly big hole in the public finances, given that these gains are typically taxed at about 20%. So we think that the hit was probably in the region of 1.5% in terms of what that meant for the, the budget deficit. Looking ahead to 2024, and as you kind of alluded to, we do see the deficit still narrowing somewhat. Um, so from 6.2% to GDP to about 5.8%. Um, so it's a pretty modest 0.4 percentage points goes without saying the deficit's going to be still quite high, but given that, um, you know, we're coming from 7.5% or so on an underlying basis in, in FY23, it does represent a pretty significant improvement. Now, I think it, it, it does feel strange to be forecasting that the deficit will narrow next year, uh, given the pretty gloomy economic backdrop that it can uh, penciled out or, or sketched out. And in fact, if we look back at comparable downturns, say the, the early 1990s recession and the bursting of the dot-com bubble, and we typically saw the deficit widen by about 1.5 percentage points as the impact from automatic stabilizers kicked in. And what's different this time around, we think, and, and obviously this is still quite tentative, is that we should see the reversal of those revenue anomalies that I mentioned. So we, we're right, and something to be looking out for going forward is we should see a, a surge in tax receipts when the October 23 data are released in a, in, in a few weeks, given that those will include the late filers from California. Um, and then we should see another bumper tax take in April 24, when the capital gains tax due on gains accrued in 2023. And based on where equities are year to date, you know, there'll be plenty of gains, those will be paid. And just on the spending side, very quickly then, we're not going to get another 7.5% jump in discretionary outlays like we saw last year. And we may even see some cuts relative to FY23, based on how government shutdown negotiations go in the coming weeks. But the fact that you know this discretionary spending um, only accounts for about a third of total federal spending means that it isn't quite as important of a driver anyway, relative to what we expect to see on the revenue side of things. 
All right. So we're not going to get another seven and a half percent jump in discretionary outlays. Part of that, I think, has to do with some of the provisions of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And then on top of that, you are looking for additional cuts to discretionary spending based on the negotiations for the government shutdown that will come back around again in a little more than a month. Obviously, House Speaker McCarthy was just removed from his post. So a ton of moving pieces there. How does that affect negotiations in a month? Do you think we get a government shutdown? I know there's a ton of uncertainty at this point, just given how monumental the removal of the House Speaker has been. How are you thinking about all of that from a, a broader macro risk perspective in the near term and from a longer term perspective, what that means for fiscal policy in 2024. Yeah. So I, I mean, our base case is still that we're probably on track for a shutdown. So maybe just to give some context on what the argument at the moment is actually about. So as we mentioned under the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, nominally it was agreed that non-military discretionary spending would be cut by 10% in FY24 back to FY22 levels um, and spend spending would rise by 3% and, and when we get to FY25 both would just rise by 1% per annum. That seems pretty cut and dry but the issue is that there are a few measures that the federal government can and appears as though it will use to get around these spending caps and once you net these out Rather than returning to FY22 levels, non-military discretionary spending effectively stabilizes at uh, the same sort of levels that pertain this year. So this was a bit of a win for the Democrats, and they were pretty, I guess they weren't shy in their efforts to hide this fact from the general public, given that it was a win for them. But as you might imagine, the gloating has kind of rubbed House Republicans up the wrong way. And they've announced that rather than the figures being contained with the, or at least their interpretation is that rather than the figures that are contained within the Fiscal Responsibility Act being a target for spending, they're actually caps and the federal government should do what it can to underspend versus these caps, ceilings, targets, whatever you want to call them. So as a result, they're trying to pass a separate set of appropriation bills or spending set below the levels of the bills passed by the Senate. And they've also sought to use these bills to push through some of their social agenda in relation to um, abortion and trans rights. As you, as you alluded to, uh, political infighting within the Republican caucus, which is evidenced by Kevin McCarthy's fairly dramatic ousting of speaker last week, has slowed progress down here quite a bit. Uh, House Republicans are due to hold a vote uh, McCarthy's replacement internally today, and the win winner should nominally be installed as speaker tomorrow on October 11th. Um, and our base case is that, I mean, that they will be able to do this reasonably cleanly, um, given that hardliners' issues with McCarthy, you know, seem to be as much about personality as politics. And that should tech, if they get their guy in, and um, technically we should see a bit more movement, at least on the appropriation bills. We won't see as much infighting within the Republican caucus. The issue is that these bills are still going to look quite a bit different from those passed by the Senate. And, and given what happened to McCarthy, the next Republican speaker is probably going to be in no room to a uh, mood to, to compromise. Um, so, so the fact that the two names tied to all, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, are both kind of died in the war conservatives, that's a sharp contrast with McCarthy's shape-shifting, maybe that's a bit unkind to him, that will make getting a deal even more difficult. So, so as a result, we still think that we're probably heading for a shutdown next month, though both sides will be um, incentivized to reach some sort of an accommodation before the year's out, given that under the terms of the debt ceiling deal, I'm an across-the-board 1% cut in discretionary spending, and that'll hit military spending too, which is an electoral and liability for both parties, but I'd say particularly for the Republicans, and that'll kick in from January 1st. Just in terms of, of the shutdown, and the CBO estimated, in terms of the macro impact, CBO estimated in the partial shutdown in 2018-2019, subtracted about, say, 0.1 percentage points from Q&Q annualized growth over the course of Q4-18 and Q1-19. 
And so that's kind of where we think the impact will be broadly similar to that in Q4. But something to be conscious of is that risks are probably tilted to the downside, given that it seems more likely that more of the government will be shut down this time uh, because none of the appropriation bills have cleared Congress as of yet. Assuming that we do get a deal in terms of what that looks like, just the last part of your question, there's a fair bit of uncertainty here as it will ultimately depend on which party bears the political cost from the shutdown. But we suspect it will probably result in those caps on non-military discretionary spending after we account for those side deals next year being reduced to at least somewhat below FY23 levels. And we do also expect that further aid to Ukraine will be watered down. So that kind of feeds into our view that the US will tip into recession by the middle of next year. So 0.1 percentage points shed from GDP if the government shutdown goes the way you're kind of expecting, similar to the 2018 to 2019 episode, which was the longest shutdown in history, if I recall correctly. And so when you think about all of the different dynamics, I guess the January 1st is kind of the new effective deadline of, of once the government shuts down after whatever date that is, November 14th or 17th, I think it is. Is that kind of then the base case is that that's the new deadline and they need to have a continuing resolution then to try and actually work on all of the various appropriation bills? What are kind of the ins and outs of how you'd expect that to go down? Yeah, so so it's 0.1 percentage points per week, I should say, and it possibly is going to be slightly above this. I've seen figures like 0.2 percentage points kicked around. It, it just really depends on whether any appropriation bills clear Congress. That seems quite unlikely, given that even, you know, bills that historically haven't been viewed as overly partisan, such as kind of defense and veteran affairs, that there's a still a fair gulf between how the bills that the House has passed and, and what the Senate has passed. So... It's likely that risks to, in terms of that 0.1 percentage point impact on growth, are probably to the downside. In terms of how things go, yeah, if, if, if another continuing resolution isn't agreed by November 17th, then the government will shut down and until they can pass a continuing resolution again or until they can pass the FY24 budget in its entirety, the government will remain shut down. It's just that shutdown is kind of bounded by the fact that from January 1st, 2024, those sequestrations kick in. So the government will reopen. Spending will just be 1% lower. There'll be 1% of cuts across the board in terms of discretionary spending. And um, just on the prospects for another continuing resolution, I think we need to remember that um, McCarthy was pushed out because he agreed a clean resolution with the Democrats. And it's quite unlikely that his successor will kind of follow the same approach. Um, they may agree to pass a continuing resolution that involves more significant cuts to spending for a, a temporary period of time. But, but the problem is that this is likely to be unacceptable to the Democrats in the White House and in the Senate. So as a result, they'll probably be more willing to see how this plays out and hope that the, as in shutdowns gone by, that it's the Republicans who kind of bear the political cost for, from a shutdown and allow that shutdown to go ahead. Would the Democrats be happy with a 1% spending cut? I, I assume no. I, it doesn't seem like something that either side would be happy with right now. The Republicans want more in terms of cuts and and the Democrats would prefer no cuts at all. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, and that's why we think that ultimately both sides will come to some sort of a deal. Got it. Well, that's all really helpful, kind of framing up what we're looking at over the next couple of months. Is there anything in terms of key drivers of the fiscal year 2024 deficit that we haven't covered that you think is important to highlight to our listeners? No, not really. The only thing we probably haven't touched on is just the outlook for mandatory spending. I guess this could be one thing that's worth uh, pointing out here. 
So we're not going to see the same sort of jump in mandatory spending this year because um, part of the issue in FY23 was that uh, Social Security was indexed in line with inflation. So since the early 1970s, there have been cost of living adjustments with respect to kind of Social Security. So that won't be repeated this year. The other thing that's kind of worth keeping an eye on is that debt servicing costs are going to continue to march higher. So we go all the way back to 2015, debt servicing costs kind of bottomed out at 1.2% of GDP. They rose to 2% of GDP in FY22. And, and because of the kind of Fed's aggressive tightening and, and increased issuance, they've increased as high as 2.5% of GDP. On current trends, they look likely to push above 3% by, not, not next year, but by the middle of this decade, which would bring them in line with defense spending. And they'll just continue to grow significantly there on after. I should also say just on that front that because federal government revenues account for a fairly slow proportion of GDP in the US relative to elsewhere, as a percentage of overall revenues, they account for roughly, already they account for roughly 12.5% of total government revenues. So that's quite significant. It looks a lot worse than we see elsewhere. I don't know how you would view a, a corporate that looks like this in the kind of credit space. No, that's a great point. Clearly, the market is viewing the deficit and debt situation as having worsened and something that needs to be priced in. You've mentioned the, the huge rise in real yields that we saw really over the past couple of months or, or accelerate over the past couple of weeks even. That's something that we've been discussing with the clients that I do think a big part of that is a repricing of the Fed's policy path, but there's definitely an aspect of fiscal deterioration concern. And I think your points on the debt servicing costs rising to two and a half percent of GDP, that's been a substantial move. And that's, did I hear you correctly that it's on track to be about in line with defense spending from an annual perspective if deficits continue the way you expect and rates remain high? Yeah, but by 2027. So actually, 2027. Honestly, and by the, the CBO's forecast, and, and we don't need to get into it now, but I think typically speaking, and correct me if I'm wrong, most people would view the CBO's forecast in the past as being excessively downbeat. I think if you look at some of the underlying assumptions now, they might be a bit too upbeat. In fact, they think that debt servicing costs in terms of, you know, the coupon that the treasury pays will, will average around 3.3% over the next 10 years. And given where, you know, yields are now, risks that are probably to the upside. So just in terms of where things are going in servicing costs, percentage of GDP will rise to above roughly around 4% 10 years from today. And based on those fairly optimistic forecasts, so they'll actually increase quite a bit above the defense spending. And just if you're interested in kind of macro history in the 1980s, when interest rates peaked at, say, 20%, debt servicing costs never actually pushed higher than 3% of GDP. And that was the highest in U.S. economic history. So we're going to blow through that by the looks of things over the coming years. Yeah, it's pretty astounding when you think about some of these numbers and the impact it has. I think the other thing that you pointed out earlier in our discussion that is worth coming back to is the Fed is essentially no longer remitting the net interest that it had been earning on its portfolio as you, you've had paper losses in terms of these bonds that they hold at, at much lower interest rates than the current prevailing market rate. And the other big driver there is, of course, the rate it pays on reserves held at the bank overnight and then the overnight reverse repo facility with the shape of the curve that's become an extremely costly prospect for the Fed. And I think at one point, they were remitting as much as 100 to 110 billion back to the treasury in interest that it had been earning on its portfolio, and that's down to zero. So, certainly not helping the fiscal picture. Now, we've kind of covered where debt servicing is in terms of a, a percent of GDP. 
how does the debt to GDP ratio look like in terms of, you know, your near-term forecasts and perhaps the, the path going forward from a, a run rate perspective? And how does that compare to other developed market economies? Yeah, and before I tackle that question, I might just add, it could be worse. It could be the Bank of England or the UK. So in the UK, the Treasury actually gave the Bank of England an indemnity against those losses. So not only does the UK Treasury not receive that fiscal transfer from the Bank of England each year, it also has to cover the losses on the QE program. And given that, you know, the bank's actually selling, uh, unlike the treasury, outright selling gilt, and the impact there is going to be quite a bit more significant. Don't ask me what the numbers are. I just know it looks pretty ugly. In terms of the UK's or the US debt figures, if we just look at the US, the CBO forecast, maybe to get an objective view, the deficit's expected to average about 6% over the rest of the decade and push above 10% by the 2020, 2050. Kind of, it just continues to deteriorate there on out. So if fiscal policy follows this path, we, we should expect that the US debt to GDP ratio, uh, even if we just kind of limit our attention to debt held by the public, so that nets out the debt held as part of the Social Security and Medicare trust funds, and that will rise from about 95% to GDP or um, to 110% in the early 2030s, and, and then over 150% by mid-century. You know, if you're a bit more downbeat, it, it, it's quite easy to construct a scenario where debt to GDP is north of 120% already by the end of this decade. Now, this is scary, but the thing is that the US debt burden doesn't necessarily look too out of line with most developed markets. And I mean, if anything, it looks pretty positive relative to the likes of Japan and Italy, where debt ratios are already at, you know, around 250% and 140% respectively. And the US data are also still pretty consistent with, say, the UK. And the only DMs that look a lot better are your Northern European markets like Germany and some of the Scandies. Canada looks a bit better too, I guess, but there's issues in terms of comparability. But I do think it's kind of worth stepping back and thinking about what this really means. You know, theoretically, and I'm going to generalize a little bit, the kind of solvency condition for public debt is met if the outstanding amount of initial debt is expected to be covered by the present value of expected future primary balances. And kind of using this framework, it suggests that, you know, the market is forward-looking and it's just the case that it still believes that governments will write the ship eventually. But it does also indicate that there's a, a debt threshold beyond which the market no longer believes this. And it starts to, I guess, price in a bit more of a credit risk into the curve. You know, it seems fair to say that this threshold won't necessarily be common to each economy. So cross-country comparisons more generally aren't particularly helpful. You know, the question of sustainability will really hinge on relative perceptions of credibility and, and demand for that country's, for that economy's sovereign debt. We did see in the early 2010s, you might remember Reinhardt and Rogoff wrote a, a fairly influential paper that seemed to underpin a lot of the austerity policies that were implemented at the time. And that argued at the threshold at which debt becomes problematic for an economy is around 90%. But those conclusions actually fell apart once an error was corrected in their spreadsheet. And just in terms of the US, and you know, obviously I can't comment on issues of sustainability. It's not what we do at BMI. But, but in the US case, I think the positives are that there are a lot of price insensitive buyers, you know, particularly current account surplus countries recycling those surpluses. Um, and I don't think it looks unreasonable to suggest more generally that investors will look at the US and say, yeah, you know, despite all the, the craziness in the political front, we always expect that the government will pay us back. But then the problem is that the politicians look at the market reaction and think, well, you know, there's no pressure on us to act. Why would we? And I guess it's just a case of reflexivity of markets and action. So I actually see credible efforts taken in Washington and first probably need to see the market and get worried that this won't happen, I guess. And I'm glad I'm not a fixed income investor or a fixed income strategist trying to determine where this breaking point is. Yeah, it's been a difficult market to try to figure out just with the pace of the rise. And, you know, what we've been focusing on to clients is kind of, you know, 
a little bit more of the global context in terms of where the debt to GDP ratio is. It's not crazy. The, the trend is not good. And so the market pricing in a, a little bit more of a term premium there makes some sense to us. But I think the point about price insensitive buyers and even within the U.S., there's pension funds that are, are fully funded and probably looking to de-risk portfolios that had been much riskier as those solvency ratios fell to as low as in the 70s in terms of, of percent following the financial crisis. And so now with those funded ratios well above, if you look at where U.S. rates are globally, they're certainly attractive. We, we do some good analysis looking at how hedging costs impact that and that's something to balance out. But in terms of flows into Treasury, that's really remained solid in 2023, despite elevated hedging costs for, for several key borrowers. And so the last question I want to ask you, Connor, just to sort of frame up how you think about the elevated budget deficit, rising debt to GDP ratios, but not really out of whack with other major developed market nations. How does the U.S. dollar's position as the reserve currency sort of impact your view on how much rates could potentially respond to the, the fiscal backdrop that we're currently expecting? Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. Um, I think kind of central to the outlook is the fact that the, the, the situation doesn't necessarily look that much different elsewhere. And um, I guess kind of my one concern and, and, you know, as you said, you would kind of track the boat flow. So correct me if I'm wrong. My um, concern would be that maybe some of those FX reserve managers that have been recycling current account surpluses that given geopolitical issues following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and um, mainly look at mainland China here, or maybe shifting investment priorities. Um, so for instance, you know, MBS's plans with respect to Saudi Arabia, that they might stop um, buying the debt in, in the same way that they had previously. And in that case, you know, might we see yields rise in kind of tandem with the dollar? And I think, you know, the US historically hasn't actually been what, what we kind of focus in on the fact that the U.S. has this exorbitant privilege. The U.S. hasn't been immune to these dynamics in the past. I mean, if we look at the late 1970s, I think that the Carter administration was actually forced to issue debt um, denominated in yen and in, in Deutschmark in an effort to kind of stabilize the dollar because people didn't want to fund the deficit anymore. I also think that if you look in the 1980s, post the Plaza Accords in, in 1985, you know, the dollar sold off very aggressively. Um, and part of the explanation for that and um, why the dollar didn't stabilize thereafter was because uh, your, your current account surplus countries in Japan and in Germany, uh, they didn't want to step in and kind of fund that deficit anymore. And that also helped to explain why, you know, it took a premium to kind of narrow after the Volcker shock once it was clear that inflation was under control. And I think it is worth noting that, you know, the term expansionary fiscal contraction was actually coined, you know, partly in response to the expansion that followed Bush and Clinton's fiscal tightening in the 90s. It saw long end rates come down and also saw the dollar rally quite significantly up until 1995, unless I'm mistaken. So I guess I do think there are some concerns, but the fact that there is no alternative to the dollar kind of helps to mitigate them somewhat. Yeah, definitely some very important topics and really taking a longer run and more systemic perspective. So Connor, I really appreciate this discussion. It's been immensely helpful for me. I'm sure our viewers have, our listeners have enjoyed it as well. So that's Connor Beakey, our North American analyst for BMI, part of our Fitch Solutions team. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Zach. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Have a good day. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.